And we're back for another episode of Startup Hustle, a podcast for entrepreneurs by entrepreneurs. If you want to start, own, or build a business, then you're in the right place. We bring you the real truth about what it's like to take something from concept to launch, from growth, innovation, experience, failing, or winning big, we've got you covered. So let's get down to business with another episode of Startup Hustle, brought to you by Fullscale.io. And we're back for another episode of the Startup Hustle. This is your host today, Matt Watson. Really excited to be talking about something that's kind of near and dear to my heart. It might be a little boring for some people, but I promise it won't be boring today. We're going to talk about IT... API security, and nobody's excited about that, Jeremy, I'm sorry, but we're going to make it exciting today, I promise, so stick around, everybody. we got Jeremy Snyder, who is the founder and CEO of Firetail. Um, for those who know my background, I, I sold stuff to IT before, and I've got battle scars and nightmares to uh, talk to Jeremy about today, so it's going to be a fun conversation. Before we get started, I do want to remind everybody, if you need to hire software developers, full skills the option for you. You can hire software developers for 60, 70, 80% less than normal. Um, we have great senior level talent out of the Philippines. Glad to work with you. Check us out at fullscale.io. Jeremy, welcome to the show, man. Very happy to be here, Matt. IT is exciting, right? IT is always exciting because there's always something new and it's always changing. And when you think it's gotten boring, that just means that you're not paying attention or you're not staying ahead of the curve or your org has stagnated because there's always well, something new. Nobody cares about IT until something doesn't work. Like the website's down, the software's down, yeah. there's an outage. Like then everybody cares about IT a lot, like a whole lot, right? Yeah. <laughs> I, I get what you're saying. And I will say that is very true. And by the way, doubly true for cybersecurity. Nobody yeah. cares about security, Nobody even cares. less than IT, Nobody until cares. the moment when something goes wrong. And the crazy thing is, I, I actually like, not to go down too deep of a tangent here, but I thought I was done with cybersecurity. About three years ago, the security company that I was with at the time got acquired. And I thought, you know what? That's enough security. It is a high stress job. That is no thanks when everything is going well. Yeah, nobody and then cares. Then a lot of blame when the you know the crap hits the fan, so to speak. And then you get fired. <laughs> and then you get fired. And actually, what changed it all for me was the pandemic. And what I ended up experiencing at the time was I was working on cloud security and I was working with customers around the world. We, my team and I, focused on kind of security strategy and security architecture for some of these companies with large scale cloud footprints. And what ended up happening is that as we were all in lockdown, we were working with a couple of the companies that were working on vaccines. Oh, and wow. they were under sustained constant attacks. And what we found was that actually being able to protect their cloud environments allowed them to keep running simulations that ultimately led to the mRNA techniques that were the basis of the vaccines that we all hopefully got. And then I realized like, okay, I understand this stuff. I can actually add some value. I can understand and identify some of the new emerging IT, like some of the different IT paradigms, constructs, technologies, whatever you want to call them, and help to mitigate threats and risks around them. So I decided it was a good use of my time. 
Um, but otherwise, like, yeah, it's 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 not always super exciting. I get that. Well, let me let me ask you this. So we're in the middle of a global pandemic, you know, 2020 or whatever, like you're talking about. Why would yeah. these hackers be trying to mess with people that are trying to create vaccines to solve a global pandemic? What do you think Profit is their motivation? Geopolitics. Profit and geopolitics. So you had uh, largely state actors, uh, nation state actors who were going after intellectual property that their own R&D groups didn't have. And these might be nation states that are kind of cut out of global supply chains and trade organizations. And so this is ultimately for some of them, their best path to getting their hands on some of that intellectual property that would be the basis for a vaccine. And then the other side is if you are a, you know, the, the companies that created the vaccines landed very large contracts with governments around the world. Billions. And, you know, Billions. Exactly. So the profit motive is definitely there as well. All right. Very cool. So tell us a little more about Firetail. What, what is Firetail exactly? And what, what led you to create it? What was the inspiration behind that exactly? So what Firetail is, is we are a software company that helps organizations identify risks on their APIs, mitigate those risks, and then put in place continuous discovery, monitoring, alerting, et cetera. So we'll help you find what API risks you have today, fix them, and then put that in place going forward. Little bit of a set it and forget it type of vibe to the software itself once you're up and running and you've kind of gone through that initial uh, phase of mitigating your current risks. What led us to create it is that, you know, my co-founder and I, we both came out of cloud security. And what we saw was a lot of the risks on cloud security were starting to get fixed, both by the cloud providers like AWS, Microsoft Azure, and Google, creating more secure default configurations, and also just customers and security teams getting better at cloud security. But at the same time that that was happening, there was a large shift in software development um, kind of architectures. And we really moved into a world where APIs were central to a lot of modern software designs. I'm sure if you go ask your, your teams or let's say the folks at full scale that you know, what are some of the software requirements coming in for projects that they're working on? I bet you that at least half of them, if not more, start with designing backend APIs and figuring yeah, for, out, you know. I mean, almost all software development is done this done today in React or Angular or Vue or some kind of front-end framework that uses APIs to talk to some backend, like like seems like exactly. 99% of it is done that way. It's not 99%, but it sure feels that way. Exactly. And so that was the shift that we saw starting um, kind of around a similar time frame to what I already talked about. And so we realized that, yeah, you're going to mitigate a lot of your crowd risks, all, cloud risks already, but you're going to have a whole new set of risks around your APIs. And APIs are actually particularly attractive to attackers for, for one kind of interesting reason. Well, two, maybe two or three reasons. But one is that APIs sit in front of both data and business logic and transactional processing. So by breaking into an API, you can potentially not only like steal and exfiltrate data, but you might be able to manipulate the underlying application to do something for you. Right. That might be as simple as like order me a free pizza using somebody else's authentication token, right. or it might be as complex as like um, remote unlock a car, remote start the engine as was reported earlier this year as a vulnerability around APIs in connected cars. If right. I can remote unlock and start your car using APIs, I can steal your car using APIs. And so there's you know, this kind of dual element of why they're so attractive, 
combine that with what you said about how all software projects pretty much start with APIs nowadays. So there's a lot of there's a lot of reason that people should care about this, maybe more than they do right now, but maybe they just don't know what they don't know at this point, which is kind of where we end up spending a lot of time right now talking to customers about what these emerging uh, API risks are. So you mentioned before we started recording that you this is actually the third company you founded. Tell us a little about some other things you've done as well. Yeah. So this is my fifth overall startup, third that I've co-founded. Um, so I co-founded a video game company in 2006. We were a 3D metaverse only about 15 years before the next metaverse hype cycle, um, and which also, by the way, has fizzled out pretty quickly, I, I will point out. Um, but, you know, we raised uh, about 20 million at that point in time to build this out. We ran that for four years. We had a really interesting run. Uh, we grew to about half a million players around the world, a uh, big chunk of them in Southeast Asia. So that actually led me to move to Singapore to run operations there. Um, and then we ultimately crashed and burned. A lot of good lessons learned coming out of that one. Uh, also co-founded a company in the e-commerce space working on kind of um, sharing economy, collaborative consumption stuff. Uh, we made a white label engine that would let anybody build their own kind of Airbnb style website. Uh, and um, a lot of fun, a lot of learnings, but ultimately like there wasn't a, a large enough demand. And so we kind of uh, shut that down by selling off the IP to our existing customer base and then moving on to do other things. I've also spent some time at AWS. I worked in cloud security for a number of years with a company that I joined as an early stage startup. I think I was employee number six or seven there. I don't remember exactly. We grew that business uh, about 20x in a four-year period before that got acquired. And I spent some time with a larger cybersecurity company that acquired us actually working on M&A. Um, and before all of that, I spent 13 years as a practitioner doing IT and cybersecurity. So kind of hands-on yeah. keyboard, building networks, um, building data centers, building teams to build networks and data centers, and then, uh, and then transitioned into more kind of customer-facing roles. So when you guys had the idea for Firetail, did you have any idea, like, is it the same today as what the original idea was? Or does it, has the idea kind of changed from the very beginning? Uh, it's changed a lot. It's changed a lot. Our initial, our initial thesis around how we were going to tackle API security um, was based around creating inline controls to examine API calls in real time. And we built out a set of open source libraries. They still exist, by the way, and we do have a number of people using them. Um, but we really thought that this would be like, a, hey, let's make this set of open source libraries. Let's put them out into the world. Let's make them available for developers who are building APIs so they can just kind of ship a, an API that is secure by design, has some protections um, you know, integrated into the API itself as a package before it goes live. And what we found is in talking to people, and we spent a lot of time talking to developers, a lot of time at you know developer events or talking to developer meetup groups and whatnot, we just didn't get the reception that we thought. We got a lot of, that is academically cool. I have other fish to fry. You know, there's, there's just a, a lot of priorities and a lot of kind of conflicting um, priorities for the developer's time and attention. And I get it, actually. And, it, you know, I didn't get it at the beginning. But after going through that process and talking to a lot of people, what we found is like developers are under uh, immense pressure to ship. And anything that kind of slows down their development cycle or that slows down their delivery times, 
may be surplus to requirements or may just kind of get left by the wayside. And so we've ended up having to pivot what we were building and how we even frame the problem and talk about the problem quite a lot in the last nine, 12 months. Well, and for my, you know, so I had a startup before called Stackify that I sold uh, a couple of years ago and that did application performance monitoring, kind of similar, kind of related in some ways. And I always likened it to, we had the same problem with developers, right? Of trying to get them to understand like, this is a tool that could help you. It could help you do your Bob, your job better, et cetera. But likened to like most of them were like firefighters, but yet they didn't even really have like a real fire, like a real fireman's hose. They had like a little garden hose trying to put out, <laughs> put out problems. Right. And yeah. they wouldn't even stop yeah. and realize like, Hey, there are better tools and better ways. And like, we could bring in like the big pumping station and the big fire hose to solve these problems. But like, yeah, they wouldn't do it. <laughs> it was very frustrating for me. Yeah. Yeah. But like I said, I get it. I mean, they've got all these competing priorities and they've got all these, you know, product requirements being fed to them. And, you know, generally speaking, a lot of these technology companies operate in very competitive spaces where the ability to ship a feature, you know, two weeks earlier than your competitor might make a meaningful difference. And, you know, to that fire hose point, like if you've got your boss breathing down your neck to ship and deliver, and then you've got all this set of extra capabilities that you should build in an ideal yeah. world, or you should integrate in an ideal world. I get it. So how do so how did this change then? So you wanted the developers to install some packages that that would help implement some of the security. How, yeah. What changed then? How does it work differently today? Without getting like crazy over technical for our listeners here. Yeah, I'll try not to, but um, it's it's very easy to get quickly pulled down that rabbit hole. But what ended up changing was that we realized that the person who was really tasked with solving the problem of, you know, the problem writ large of API security is the security team. And it's kind of challenging to figure out how they're supposed to do that because ultimately they have responsibility for overall organizational security or infosec but they very often don't control the things that they end up having to monitor and secure. And so what we realized was the best thing that we could provide for them was kind of continuous self-updating visibility into all the APIs that they have inside their network, and then an assessment of what are the security risks of those APIs. Okay. So at a high level, that's what ended up changing. We do one more thing on top of that is we put in place ongoing monitoring of the APIs for their mm -hmm. um, kind of utilization and behaviors and traffic patterns and things like that. But a big part of it is now, instead of being a set of open source code libraries for developers, we still have those, by the way, but instead of that being the primary focus of the company, the primary focus of what we're building out turns to be, let's help security teams identify and mitigate risk on their APIs. So do you that is kind of the main thing. So is it more of a monitoring tool or does it actually prevent, you know, potentially malicious, you know, activity? So the preventative controls are still there, but they are still in the open source code libraries. So okay. the customer journey ends up being very much like security teams kind of sign on first. They identify all the APIs, they assess them, or they get the automated assessment that tells them like, hey, Matt, you have these hundred APIs out of which these 10 look really bad. Maybe you want to go work with the developers of those 10 to implement the preventative controls. Okay. And so that kind of ends up being the customer journey. 
So do you end up having a bunch of problems where your software conflicts with other software that they use, like other monitoring and APM tools and intrusion detection tools or like all that kind of stuff that you have to deal with too? So far, no. I, I won't give it a categorical no, but so far, no. We haven't run into okay, a lot of that. And I mean, maybe that is a result of the environments that we support. We're primarily built for public cloud environments. Um, and so, you know, we don't run into a lot of customers who are implementing a lot of that stuff. APM, yes, sure, but it, that's not conflicting. Um, Doesn't conflict. We do end up generating kind of uh, APM telemetry data for APIs as a, as a byproduct of what we're doing in the kind of log analysis and log uh, monitoring. But, um, but no, we don't end up conflicting, thankfully. So... Tell me in the early days, you thought you were going to build these these packages and and basically sell this to developers, right? Like, how, how did that right. go? What was it like selling to developers? Because I have nightmares from that. <laughs> I, you know, I, I don't well, think we I got to the say, trauma. <laughs> so I always say they, because at Stackify, this is what we did. Like, I always say, like, they, um, you know, they all use ad blockers. They don't like spam. They don't, they don't answer the phone. They don't, you know, they don't answer emails. I feel like most of them are like wearing aluminum foil hats in the basement somewhere. <laughs> like, yeah. It's trying to market to the, and they have no budget and no authority to make a decision to buy something. That's, that's how I, I always kind of summarized it. Those last two points were a particular concern the more we dug into it, right? Like, um, but uh, by the way, security teams are very, very similar. They all use ad blockers, they, you know, all have email filters on. Yeah. Um, you know, all of that is very challenging for, for almost anything selling into IT in the modern climate, by the way. Yeah. Like, you know, it could be APM, it could be cybersecurity, it could be just general, like, I don't know, you could be a Windows patching company, or you could be like an anti-malware or anti-ransomware company. You could have the greatest anti-ransomware solution ever invented. And that's, you know, maybe arguably the number one problem in cybersecurity today. You could have that solution and you're still going to find it difficult to connect with the buyers. Um, so we kind of knew that going in, thankfully, um, from previous experience. We knew that it's really hard to reach those people through a lot of traditional outreach methods. So we, we decided not to do any of that. Um, we decided we're only going to engage developers at the places where developers congregate and where we're allowed to. So we put out a ton of proposals to present at developer meetups, virtual developer meetups, conferences, um, open source conferences, et cetera. And we did a number of those. And that's where we ran into the, hey, this is academically cool, but like it's not a high priority yeah. for this audience. So we didn't, thankfully, we didn't get maybe to the level of trauma or traumatization that you got to um, only because we didn't pursue some of those tactics. But I, I do agree that like reaching people within IT generally is very hard nowadays. It's very, very hard. So you you mentioned before about you worked in IT for a long time and now you sell yeah. the IT instead. How has that changed yeah. your perspective of IT? Um I I mean, I continue to think of it like we talked about earlier. It's that kind of thankless thing. And so I guess the main thing that I would say is I can relate to a lot of the problems that customers express to you. Um, it does make me take a much more thoughtful approach to things than I often saw. I, one of the reasons I kind of made that transition was I often hated the vendors that came calling on me. Um, 
and and I'm sure like if you've spent time in IT or any of the audience has, you can probably relate to this, especially going back maybe, you know, 10, 15 years. And I've been doing this 25 plus years at this point, um, not to date myself, but you would very often have that kind of thing where you've got an account exec who kind of knows nothing, if we're honest about it, right? His job is to wine and dine you, schmooze you, whatever, make you feel special. Qualify you. Figure <laughs> right. out if you have budget and a need. Yep. And and then you have a like a, a sales engineer, solution architect, pre-sales technical, whatever it's called, right? Um, that's the person that you ultimately will want to talk to. And the one thing that I used to get really frustrated with those conversations was I always felt like I was being talked at, not communicated with. Um, very much like it's a, okay, we're going to ask you all these questions, do this whole discovery song and dance qualification conversation, et cetera. But then I'm ultimately like, no matter what you say, you're going to get the same spiel from me. And the solution architects, they at least would understand, but they were, their job was generally to just kind of repeat the same stuff. I'm going to run the same demo. I'm going to run the yeah. same kind of, you know, process to tell you about how amazing this is and show you the same screens and reports and automations or whatever. What I will say really has informed my own, you know, my own approach to these conversations as I've transitioned from being the user to now selling to a lot of, you know, what would have been the old me. Um, I try to be much more thoughtful about it and actually like try to understand their environment and their challenges a lot more than I always felt like I was treated. Um, so that is something that I have very much preached in the teams that I've built in the, in particular, in the sales engineers that I've built and with the, you know, the account execs, the actual salespeople that I've hired over the years, I've always tried to reinforce to them that like your job is not to win a deal. Your job is because I feel like there's a lot of, um, unintentional, but negative adversarial relationships that go into that. Like if you, the salesperson feel like you're winning the deal, then what's happening to the customer? Is the customer losing the deal? Like, and I feel right. like there is that kind of, you know, I won despite everything Matt told me about, it's, it's, you know, what he has needed. to be more consultative selling. Exactly. And so I've always kind of coached the sales, uh, the salespeople that have been at companies where I've, you know, managed them. Your job is to facilitate. Your job is to guide a customer towards the most logical outcome being to work with us. But sometimes that doesn't work out. And so like in the cases when it doesn't work out, A, don't be a jerk. B, don't neg the customer at the end on the way out, which I've seen far too often from salespeople. Um, you know, the whole like, okay, you go with the competitor, you're going to fail and you're going to call me back in six months. Like that is just a jerk yeah. kind of yeah. comment. Um, I've seen that all too often. Yep. But, <laughs> you know, you will find along the way that not all, you, you don't have the right solution for every customer environment you're not able to meet every customer's needs. Um, be honest about that. And, you know, as a salesperson, your goal is to kind of like project manage that whole conversation to its logical conclusion. Ideally, the logical conclusion is that they do end up going with you, but, you know, sometimes it doesn't. And so again, just, you know, manage that well. Well, in worst case scenario, hopefully they refer somebody else to you. Yeah. Right. I mean, if you're looking like, at it the right way. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, if look, if if you're the the best thing that can happen is that a a deal that you didn't get, you know, somebody that didn't sign up as a customer 
refer somebody else who is a better fit for you. Yeah. That tells you a lot about your organization. Yeah, right? absolutely. Well, I do want to stop and remind everybody, if you need to hire software developers, full scale's great option for you. We have over 300 employees in the Philippines that work for dozens of other startups and scale-ups. We build dedicated teams that work only for you, directly for you. And Jeremy, you have an interesting development team, I think is really cool. We were talking about this earlier. That is in places people don't necessarily yeah. think of. And yeah. so you're... I guess first thing is you're in Virginia, which you yep. know, like can't I'm in Kansas. Nobody thinks of Kansas or Virginia as being high tech. But I guess first question is what is it like to have a business in Virginia? Is there any pros or cons or I, I mean, generally speaking, people talk about Virginia as being a business friendly state. I will say, um, you know, not to get into politics, but it is a generally a business friendly environment, very easy to incorporate, get up and running, not expensive. Uh, not non-existent, but low state taxes. Um, we do have a bit of a tech scene. We do have, you know, Amazon HQ2 is here. This was, for, for those who have been around for a while, uh, this was the headquarters of uh, some some very, like, kind of shameful names to look back on, but companies that actually established a lot of the modern internet. So if, you're, if you remember a name called UUNet, um, AOL, MCI WorldCom, all of these like early internet service providers were all here. Okay. Um, we have a legacy of that now. So if you're using modern cloud platforms, AWS US East One is here. Microsoft Azure US East is here. Google uh, US East yeah. is here. We've got about 25% of the world's uh, internet capacity here. Oh, literally wow. about 15 minutes that way. Um, so, you know, it's, it's just row after row of data center because we've got the convergence of two of the largest fiber uh, backbones. Uh, okay. the intersection of the north, south, and east, west. Um, and we have no natural disasters and we have relatively cheap electricity costs. So it's Perfect. A, a, yeah, it's a good place to have a data center. Um, but so that brings a whole community around. So it's a great place to put servers. Is it a, great place, to, is it a great place to find software developers? Uh, it's challenging on the software development side. And so um, there, there's a large software development community, but what you end up competing with here, if you are a startup founder like me, is you end up competing with both the federal government and all of its various branches who started to pay market competitive salaries. They pay proper market rate. And if the federal government directly doesn't, then all of the contractors and systems integrators that serve those federal customers, they pay well. So okay. you've got a lot of competition for talent. There was a joke a few years ago, the cloud security company that I was with, we had all of our software development here. And we would sometimes lose candidates to the likes of Booz Allen Hamilton or you know Lockheed Martin or whatever. And you're like, well, what is Lockheed Martin doing on cloud platforms? And it's not that they themselves were, but all their customer contracts, they were building a lot. And the joke was, you know, if you could spell AWS, you could land a 200K a year job with one of those guys pretty easily. Um, so... With Firetail, um, well, it certainly helped that my co-founder lives in Dublin. And so, you know, it was a very easy decision for us to look at building up teams on the same time zone, on that side of the world, Okay, easier for communication purposes. So we have our R&D split between Ireland and Finland. Um, I myself am a Finnish citizen. I've got a number of family connections back there. Oh, okay. I, I, I did three years in chemical engineering in Finland in, in university level before dropping out and moving to the States. Separate story. Um 
but you know, I had connections from my days back there into the tech community, and um, and we found a couple people who were exceptional talents, and we decided to build a team there around them as well. And both of those have worked out really great for us. Uh, we do bring everybody together. We're you know we're remote first, but we do bring everybody together uh, twice a year for kind of team meetups and um, you know and kind of just bonding, team building, but also to whiteboard together, solve difficult problems. Uh, you know. Sometimes when you're working remote, it can be hard to remember that, oh, Matt's really good with graph theory and there's something I'm trying to figure out. So let's get on a whiteboard and work together. That's one thing that I do feel like you lose in that remote first culture. So we try to bring some of that, you know, uh, you know, brainstorming together into those get togethers. Um, And those have turned out to be a lot of fun in addition to being very productive sessions. What does it cost to hire a software developer in Finland or Ireland? Uh, less than half than what I pay here, what you would pay here in the DC area. And that's DC. That's less than New York. That's less than the West Coast. Yeah. So, yeah. So probably fifty to $100,000 a year, roughly. Yeah, that's fair. Yeah. Yeah. Most people don't think about, like, I never would have thought about hiring developers in Ireland or Finland. And there's, yeah. but... Most people don't realize that 90% of software developers are not in the United States. They're all over the place, right? And like at full scale, we have 300 employees in the Philippines that do work for people. And there's talent everywhere. They're everywhere. And so that's very cool that, you know, your your team is there. Did you mention you also had some people in some other places, not just Ireland Uh, and Finland? Just Ireland and Finland. We've got a few different places around across the U.S. on some of the sales and marketing team. Um, oh, okay. So we do a lot of customer facing stuff here, uh, but we do a lot of the technical stuff a- a- over there, pretty much all. So yeah. when we were talking about selling this earlier and, and you were the struggles of trying to sell to software developers, so you've since made the pivot and you're selling direct, direct to CISOs or other, which is chief information security, security officer, officer. Yep. and other like security kinds of, of department, you know, related uh, positions in those departments. How, how is that? Is it, you know, has that been a really good transition for you guys? How, how is like growth and, and, and kind of the, the, the phase of the company now? Uh, we're in a strong growth position right now. So we've, um, we've picked up a lot of new signups and, uh, in new companies coming on board in the last several months here, but, um, it's a combo. So we, we do both the kind of direct sale to the security teams Often it's not the CISO themselves who gets involved, but it's, you know, one to two levels below, but somebody within their organization, right? Um, you know, any C-level often is involved in more kind of company management and, um, and, and strategy than they are in the day-to-day implementation work and perhaps rightfully so. Right. Um, but we work with a lot of people within those organizations. I would say the transition has been generally like overall positive and the right thing for us to do. And it has led to a lot of success for us. But it also meant that the set of capabilities that we had, uh, had to dramatically change. Like we had to really go back to the drawing board to think about like, okay, this is a complete new stakeholder, a complete new persona. What are the challenges that they face? And then design for that and then go out and, you know, validate um, assumptions and then test that again and again. Uh, you know, every customer conversation you have, even if it's somebody who shows no interest in the end, you learn from that as well. Yeah. And so, you know, just kind of being very, 
very good and diligent at like kind of listening to what people say, you know, running demos, talking about your vision, problems you're trying to solve and getting the feedback along the way. Customers, partners, analysts, all of it is is informative and help you can help push you in one direction or the other that, you know, ideally leads you towards providing a better solution that solves their problems more effectively. I mean, a lot of times that feedback that you get is just as important if they buy or not, right? Like, because you need to learn from that feedback. And that's one of the things I uh, post about on LinkedIn quite a bit is is the value of that feedback, just meeting with people, talking to customers. Like, it's easy for for someone like you. You're like, hey, I've worked in IT security forever. I know what they need. I'm going to build it. They'll buy this thing. Versus like actually going and talking to them and figuring out if that's really what they want to buy. Like it's a totally different thing, but it's easy to fall in that trap, right? You're like, yeah, I know what I'm doing. I've done this for 20 years because I kind of yes. I kind of fell into that trap myself on the stack by side. I'm like, I'm going to build what I think what I wanted and everybody else is going to want it, right? Like, yep. Yep. did you I'm curious if you had some did you go through did you go through any of that and have like some, you know, kind of stark like learnings of like wow they want something drastically different than i ever thought like did you run into some of those scenarios uh yes a couple of them along the way i mean first was the initial pivot right like where we thought we knew better in terms of how do you actually solve this problem with a preventative right way you do that is with these code libraries like you know that was the number one lesson learned but even then as we started to make the pivot um a lot of the things that you know would sound super straightforward and logical were not necessarily things that we thought of. Um, so for instance, you know, one of the things that we thought was going to be super intuitive for people was the idea that APIs belong to an application. That's just like a natural thing for anybody who comes from a software development background. It's like, what are you building, Matt? Oh, I'm building the user management app or the user management service within this broader application. And so under user management, I've got any number of APIs. And so we thought like, hey, that's the right way to kind of think about organizing APIs. And so like the V1 of kind of what we started changing the product into came with that as a required um, hierarchical construct in the data management. Right. And so uh, and then we started going to security teams and they're like, could not care less. Like they care to the extent that they want to know who built the API later on, but they just want to know that the API exists. The fact that it belongs to user management almost irrelevant. Um, And so like, you know, requiring an app construct around it, we had to rethink. Um, And there was a number of lessons like that along the way. A lot of things thought like, oh, we absolutely know how this stuff is. We've built modern apps. We've built modern cloud apps. We've run modern cloud apps. We've run security for modern cloud apps. We, We absolutely know. But again, I mean, to your point, like the things that you think intuitively are right if they don't resonate with what the, what yeah. the you're getting, like you got to rethink them and don't like, don't hold to those tenets just because you're convinced you're right. Well, and we, th- this really highlights another challenge for startups, right? Like you, you understand the problem you want to solve. Like, Hey, we're trying to solve API security. And it's like, no matter who we try and solve it for, maybe 60, 80% of it is sort of the same at the core of what we're trying to solve. But that other like 20, 30, 40% could be dramatically different <laughs> depending on who you're trying to solve the problem for, right? And yeah. um, I want to, I have like a my own startup company separate from FullScale that I work on, and we do digital marketing, uh, dynamically controlling Google ads and same sort of thing. Like, are we trying to service a marketing agency or is our target customer a plumber 
Cause it's yep. like, a, it's like we're trying to do the same things, but if we're servicing the plumber, they are going to want different things than the marketing agency wants, even though like the core, like that 67, 80% of the functionality is the same. It's like the other 20% is dramatically different, but that 20% is the difference between success or failure, right? Because that's the 20% that's like special and unique for them of what they need yep. to see. Otherwise you to- forget the other 60%. It was a yeah. waste of time. Yeah. Yeah, right? absolutely. And I mean, that 20% can include some very impactful things, right? Like I would argue that your core algorithm for how you're actually solving the problem is got to be the most important thing. But then beyond that, that 20% might include things like, oh, uh, single sign-on or reporting or integration. A special report they want to see. Exactly. Or like integrations into the ticketing systems that they use every day that like, you know, nobody's going to log into your tool every day. But if you can push data into a ticketing system that they do work in every day, like then you actually become super impactful and helpful to them. So like a lot of that stuff you've got to, and again, you can't make, you can maybe start with a base set of assumptions, but then you've got to validate in those conversations is like, is this hitting the mark of what is it you want to see? How do you want to see it? Where do you want to see it? You know, all of that has to be checked and as part of your Mm -hmm. uh, customer discovery conversations. One other thing I'm curious about, um, and I think is great for our listeners to understand is, what is the sales process and sales cycle for selling something like this, right? Is this like a kind of a complex enterprise sale? Like it it takes weeks or months to sell, right? Like like what is the sales process of something uh, look like for you? I mean, generally, yes, it is kind of a complex enterprise sale for a larger organization. Um, What we've tried to also do at the same time is make it really easy for small organizations. So to that end, we're actually quite open about what we've built. And we try not to be a super secretive company. We actually put a free trial on our website. You can click and get started without ever talking to anybody at Firetail. So if you're so inclined, have at it. Um, for larger organizations, what we tend to see is a initial engagement that leads to a conversation that might have a demo in the first conversation, might not. Um, we try not to, again, we try not to be jerks about that. I do see a lot of companies that are still throwing up like intentional roadblocks and and hurdles in a customer's buying or evaluation cycle where it's like, oh, well, we have to have a discovery call before we can schedule a demo. It's like, Why? You know, we can they have don't a discovery waste... call and do a demo. Yeah, because yeah, it's like, because we don't want to waste our sales team time to talk to potential customers if they can't afford it, right? Like, that's And that's such a terrible logic. customer experience. That's their logic. I just think like that, to me, that just paints the company in such a bad light that I, I don't want anybody to ever feel like you have to jump through hoops in order to talk to us and in order to see what we're doing and understand what we're building. You might very quickly determine that it's not for you. No harm, no foul. But I don't want you to have to, you know, go through a huge back and forth um, qualification process, scheduling, email chain, whatever. Yeah. You know, yeah. You you point out something else that's that's its interesting dichotomy is if you try and optimize for those sort of free trial self-service people, that's also dramatically different than the bigger enterprise deals, right? Like different yeah, types sure. of sale, the even probably the features they want, the price they're willing to pay are totally different as well, right? To some extent, yes. Although I do think you can manage some of that with good documentation and just like tips inside the product because the core product may be roughly the same. But let's say like you might need to give them um, 
uh, what are those little things called like guides as you go through the product to navigate it's like hey you, hey matt you just signed up first thing you might want to do is connect your aws account so let's come over here here's the documented process like so you you know you can manage that without changing the product dramatically if you provide the right supporting um, documentation and the right set of kind of first-time user experience features. Yep. Well, I do want to remind everybody, if you need to hire software developers, check us out at fullscale.io. We have hundreds of developers in the Philippines working for dozens of startups and scale-ups, helping them build whatever they need to build, different kinds of front-end technologies, programming languages, all the different things, mobile apps. Um, check us out at fullscale.io. Jeremy, um, your website is firetail.io. I like the IO. We're full, fullscale.io. I like that. That's what um, I heard. So on the way out, I always love to ask people if you have any final tips or words of wisdom for other entrepreneurs that are listening. Just try to remember to learn along the way. I think it's really easy to get kind of married to the initial vision that you've set out with and not take that feedback into account as you go and as you grow. And we all make mistakes. That's natural. And it's very easy in a startup, as, a, as you know yourself, Matt, it's very easy to get too high on the highs, but then really too low on the lows. You're going to have any number of setbacks along the way. You're going to have any number of oh crap, we were totally wrong or you know, this person was totally wrong for the organization, but we didn't see it until X had happened or so much time had gone by or whatever. You got to learn to kind of brush the things off, take the learnings away from them, keep going, stay resilient and you know, learn and adapt. Um, that is the number one thing. I mean, if you can learn and adapt along the way and you identify a good problem that you're able to solve, you know, that's the, that, if you can manage all of those things, then the real question is, be, can become, did you choose the right problem to try to solve? And you control all I, the things that are within your control. I love it. And it feels like a weekly challenge as an entrepreneur. It's like never ending problems that come along. Daily, so. hourly. I mean. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so much for being on the show today. Again, this was Jeremy Snyder, founder and CEO of Firetail. Check him out at firetail.io. Thank you so much, Jeremy. Uh, it's been a pleasure, Matt. Thanks for having me. Startup Hustles brought to you by Fullscale.io, helping you build a software team quickly and affordably. Make sure you reach down and hit that subscribe button, then come find us on Instagram. See you next time. Cause, 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 cause,